You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Here, and I want to remind you that as we are here, that this is church. This is one of those moments where we, the covenant community of God, the people of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, gather together and the Spirit of God indwelling every single one of us who are believers is wanting to communicate and to convey truth from God's Word to His people. That's pretty cool. There's no place else in the cosmos where that's happening right now than the church scattered all around the planet so we get to be a part of this it's not just a thing that we do because oh it happens to be sunday this is where we actually get to commune with the sovereign being of the universe and so this morning as we continue to talk through our series this summer in the attributes of god i'm gonna i'm gonna pull a little bit of privilege here and i'm gonna sort of braid three into one you'll see what i'm talking about here in a moment but this is sort of the process of doing theology in community, doing theology together, never alone, never by ourselves do we do theology because we always run far afield in no time. We want to do community theology. It's a project. And the more time I spend with people, the more time I realize, and everybody's got this convoluted, complicated story. Everybody's got a story. And what's interesting to me is a lot of times what people say is their story isn't really their story. They think it's their story and they'll claim and they'll declare, well, this is my story, this is what I'm all about, this is what I believe. But then you start observing how they actually live their lives and you say, well, you said this, but you're actually doing all of this. Well, yeah, but, you know, and then there's a whole lot of navel-gazing. And really, that's at the heart of doing theology. When we talk about theology, here's what I want you to know. It's not intended to be this academic, ivory tower kind of pursuit. Everybody, everybody on the planet that has ever lived is a theologian. That's because everybody thinks something about God. Everybody. Your atheist neighbor, your atheist brother-in-law, your agnostic cousin, your whacked out whatever uh, workmate, Devout Buddhists, devout evangelical Christians, Muslims, Hindus, whatever. Everybody thinks something about God. Thinking that there's not one is still a theological position. Everybody is a theologian. And since we, who all think something about God, are all fallen and finite beings, that means that every single person thinks something wrong about God. Isn't that comforting? We're just going to pray and pass the plate. No. We're going to do some more. Every human being, me first, thinks something incorrect, incomplete, insufficient, or in error about our God. Now, that's interesting. That means that all of us have the opportunity to grow because every single person, we can't help this, we all behave exactly according to our belief. You may not think that you do. But every single one of us actually behaves exactly congruent with our belief. And so what is our story? What do we truly believe, not just what we claim to believe? All of us has a real-life narrative that this is how we think life works out. 
And so we do a bunch of things. Maybe for some of you, it's, hey, listen, God's great and he's big and he's awesome and I stay out of his way, he'll stay out of mine and I do some good stuff every now and then and he'll throw me some blessings and life will work out fine in the end. That's your story. That, by the way, is called deism and it's distinctly not biblical. Or I'm just gonna do my part, the hard, technical, difficult bits, and every now and then God's gonna sort of just intervene and give me a boost or a nudge, like a genie. It's a great American idea about God. It's just that it's distinctly unbiblical. So what is your story really? What do we actually believe? Because that's how I can watch your life or mine and go, I can tell you what, what you believe by virtue of what you behave what you believe dictates what you, how you believe dictates your behavior sorry about that so this leads us back to our series in the attributes of god where we get to all of us have a little bit of refinement and polishing on what we believe about god what we're going to come to see i hope through this morning's passage is a very simple big idea that i suspect nobody's going to push back on and yet it has profound implications for all of us the big idea simply goes like this God can do whatever he wants. But let me rephrase it with a little bit of an emphasis on a different syllable. God can do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 139. A very familiar psalm for many of us. Psalm 139. I'm just going to read it straight through because it is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in all human existence. And then we'll unpack it a little bit, see if we can apply it and go from there. So Psalm 139. This is one of those instances in which the superscription in your Bible's translation matters massively. It begins and it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. So it's important that we know who wrote this and why. We'll come back to that in a moment. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, 
O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. That was a quick turn. Wow, that was a pretty quick pivot there, King David. Well, there's a reason for that. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Psalm 139 is a masterpiece, and we sort of know that because it's a psalm, and it's poetic, and it's wisdom literature, and it's inspired by God's Holy Spirit. This is King David, and he's writing this 3,000 years ago. King David, who is the, in a sense, chief liturgist of the nation of Israel, writing a hymn in the inspired hymn book of the nation of Israel for the people to corporately confess together as the community of the covenant of God. This is one of those psalms, one of those hymns that the entire nation is to know by heart and they are to repeat and they are to recite by rote. It's deep diving theology. And David writes this to the choir master, meaning I want this to be on the hearts and in the heads of all of our people. This needs to be foundational and fundamental to all of our thinking, all of our feeling as a nation. Israel is supposed to be the representation and the emanation of those people who think this way about God. How'd they do? Even to this day, not so great. Israel is supposed to be the demonstration and the projection and the presentation of people who think rightly and feel deeply about their God. It's a wonderful declaration. Then It's a road map. If we will sincerely and authentically follow the pattern, the template, trust the process, if you will, of Psalm 139, give ourselves to it, and really ask God to captivate our hearts and our minds, it'll lead us through authentic, deep, sincere, meaningful, lasting, received, and acceptable worship. Psalm 139 is beautiful in its symmetry. There's really four sections, four stanzas, you might say, and each one of them is six verses long. God is the God of order, and David, as he's inspired by the Spirit, writes this down, four little verses, or four little um, sections, if you will, four stanzas. Each one of them is six verses long. The first four verses are the description. The last two verses of every stanza are the reflection. You might think of it this way. The first four verses are the what. The last two verses of every stanza are the so what and now what. This is true. This is why it matters. This is true. This is why it matters. This is true. This is now what I do. And there's these four sections that are brilliantly written to convey exactly that. And these four stanzas of Psalm 139, these 24 verses broken up, really are going to deal with three attributes of God. I'm cheating. I'm rolling them all into one. The first six verses deal with God's omniscience, that God knows everything. He knows all things. There is nothing that he doesn't know in the created world, meaning spiritual and physical. He knows all things. 
that are real. He knows all things that are potential. We get that from the first six verses. We'll unpack that here in just a moment. The second six verses have to do with God's omnipresence. It's not that God is everywhere. That's not really it. It's that there is nothing anywhere at any time that is not in God's presence. That's omnipresence. Spiritually, physically, there is nothing that is not in God's presence. The third six verses, verses 13 to 18, deal with God's omnipotence. This is our big idea for the morning. They're going to roll these things in. God can do whatever he wants. That is omnipotence. The sin of every human heart, incidentally, is that we want to be able to do whatever we want whenever we want. The problem is, A, we can't, and B, we're not strong enough, and C, we're not good. And so that creates all sorts of problems and frustrations if that's the story that we believe we are entitled to. The last six verses deal with David's response as worship to these truths. These three verses dealing with omni, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, and then David's response to it. So we're going to unpack this here just a little bit, beginning again in Psalm 139, verse 1. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The word search there is like this idea of mining, that the Lord God has mined the heart, mind, and soul of David. He has sought him out. You have searched me and you have known me. The word is yada. It's this intimate, experiential familiarity. God doesn't know about people. He knows them in and out at the molecular level. God knows all things. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. And the word afar there doesn't have to do with distance. It has to do with time. You know my thoughts even before I think them. I might think I'm having noble thoughts, but you know the motivation under the thought. Here's the thing, but you know the thing under the thing under the thing. Now that seems to be a bit invasive and intrusive, no? If there is a sovereign being who knows not only what I'm saying, not only what I'm doing, that's enough, but why I'm doing and saying, the thoughts and the motives beneath what I'm saying and doing and thinking and feeling. Ooh, he knows all of it. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's nothing about me that you don't know. Now, if that's true, that's going to begin to feel a little bit confining. And so David's going to react that way here in just a moment. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So here we see that God has the knowledge of all things, not just real, but all things potential. Before I even say it, you know what I'm going to say. Sometimes I feel like my wife has that kind of deal with me, but not exactly at this level, pretty close. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. Again, this has to do with time. There is nothing that I do that you have not already foreseen and been aware of. And you lay your hand upon me. It's not an oppressive, suffocating kind of a thing. It is a mother hen with her chick kind of an idea. Such knowledge is too wonderful. The word there is pele. In Isaiah 9, we hear that he is called wonderful, counselor, pele. In the book of Judges, when Manoah, the father of Samson, encounters the angel of the Lord, he says, you are too, Pele, that is your name. And here David says, a being like that is too wonderful. It is beyond my comprehension. If I will allow my head and my heart to go there and to think through what this means about who you are and what you're like, it's too much. 
I began to and just blow straight out. That's the new Eric translation. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't begin to wrap my mind around what it means that there is such a being who knows this much. If there is such a being that knows so much, then, then what? Then what? I got to get away. I got to go someplace where he can't see what's going on. I got to, I got to, surely there's some dark corner where I can be where he won't know. <laughs> you would never say that out loud. It's just, we call that weekends. That was a joke, Scott Gale. Relax. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If there is an all-knowing God like this, maybe there's some sort of electromagnetic barrier where you can't see what I'm thinking. No, because he is omnipresent. There is nothing nowhere at any time, material or physical, that is not in the presence of God. Incidentally, we're going to find out that even includes hell. Perhaps you've heard it said that hell is the place where God is not untrue, not a biblical notion. Unfortunately, God is the sovereign of hell. It's not the devil. Hell was prepared for the devil and his minions. And God is sovereign even there. There is no place that is outside of his presence. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Rhetorical question, nowhere. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go up, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, death, you are there. I don't cease to exist. There is consciousness, and there you would be as well. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the idea there is if I go up or down, you're there. If I go east or west, you're there. I can travel all around this world, David says, and there you would be also. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. You get the sense that David is passed as he's writing this from being... <sighs> A little bit suffocated by the idea to await. But your hand is upon me. You are comforting. You are good. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, maybe I'll just try to get in a very dark corner. There's no such thing as darkness to you, he says in verse 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see all, you know all, you are everywhere. This is the kind of God we're discussing. Verse 13 starts with the word for. Now this is important. We've got these threefold attributes of God, the famously sort of known as the three omnis. These omnis uh, are often sort of sliced separately. You've got omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, but the reality is we can't separate them. They're braided together. They go hand in hand. Omniscience and omnipresence are the first two that are leading to the recognition and the realization of the third one. That's why that, letter, that word for is there in verse 13. It's pointing back to the first two attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, for. Now we're going to study a little bit about omnipotence. This is, this is important for us to understand. Webster's Dictionary defines omnipotence as able in every respect and for every work, Unlimited in ability, all-powerful, almighty. We might theologically define omnipotence like this. God is able to accomplish all things possible and actual, but he is not able to do things inconsistent with his character. So can God do all things? Yes and no. God cannot lie. 
God cannot deny himself. God cannot suddenly say, I'm a bunny. He's not going to ever become a bunny, ever, because that would make him not God, and he can't not be God. He can't un-God himself. So is he all-powerful? Yes. Can he do everything? Yes, except that which is against who he is. So the age-old philosopher's question sitting in first-year university, the professor sits back smugly, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? And all the students whirr and they churn. And they go, oh, that professor is so smart. Flawed question. Of course, God cannot deny his own essence and nature. No, he can't raise a rock so large that he can't lift. It's a flawed question. He cannot deny himself. But Scripture, from the table of contents all the way through to the maps, wants us to understand that God is all-powerful, that he has all potential. In the book of Job, chapter 42, Job, the oldest piece of human literature we think we have, Job is some 4,000 years old. In the book of Job, chapter 42, after Job has suffered and suffered and suffered and his friends have come by to try to help him out and give him some information, give him some, some counsel, all of which was bad, by the way. Finally, Job says, you know what? You got a point here. I'm suffering unfairly. I want God to answer to me. And so God says, oh, you do? And then we get chapters 38 through 42, the God speeches where God just declares who he is and what he's capable of. Finally, Job responds like this in Job chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's 4,000-year-old human understanding about God. Fast forward to the New Testament. When Mary is told she will conceive and have a baby named Jesus, the angel Gabriel tells her in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then fast forward to future. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that word is the Pantocrator. He is the one with all existing power, all energy, all power potentiality it's his so our bible is trying to tell us from start to finish that it's him he is the one who can do whatever he wants it's all about him his sovereignty we might say is his omnipotence expressed he is omnipotent and he acts in sovereignty so let me read beginning now in verse 13 for you formed my inward parts. It's interesting to me that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decides to demonstrate God's omnipotence through the example of a human being. Please don't miss this. You might expect David to say, you formed constellations and the stars and the planets and all, and there are other places in which he does that. But as David says, the culmination of your omniscience and your omnipresence is manifest in your omnipotence. It's me. I'm the demonstration of who you are and what you're like. I'm the showplace of your glory. That's astonishing. As a pastor, if I could just get more people to recognize that, I would put just about every LPC out of business. He says in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You, you are the one who intricately formed my inward parts, my immaterial being. You knitted me together. I love that word. The, the better translation than knitted would be you embroidered. 
All through the book of Exodus, that same verb is translated embroidered when it talks about the fineries of the curtains in the temple. I want you to understand the, the, the fashioning at the digital level, not just some slapped together lump of clay. No, no, no. The, the fine artistry where Paul says in Ephesians 10 that we are his poema, his artistry, his artful fashioned creation. You embroidered me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, I know that in our day and age, there's a whole lot of conversation about when is a person a person. I'm not going to use this platform for this here and now, but it is interesting that 3,000-year-old literature seems to indicate that life begins at conception. just going to let that go right there, and you can have your conversation with me later if you'd like to about that. You formed me together, my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Why? For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I look at myself, and I think, what? kind of a being would do this obviously one with a sense of humor (laughs) but how creative how majestic is this body that he has given us that there are these little holes millions and millions of them all over our bodies and blood doesn't just go spurting out all over the time now that it's engineered it's fashioned it's it's intelligently designed for this What a fascinating God this God must be. The fact that we can taste so many different flavors. You're just paused as you're eating to go, my God, I'm so thankful that I can taste this and discern that there's a different flavor here than the thing that I ate just four bites ago. What kind of an imaginative God would come up with that? That's what David's doing. Look at my life. I see and I recognize the imagination, the glory, the splendor, the wonder of God in how I live my life. Now, candidly, most of us don't go through our days that way. What a great good God that I can see the splendor of clouds and trees and squirrels and enjoy the embrace of a loved one and have feelings for someone who's not even my biological family. What kind of a good God would create that sort of atmosphere? He must be something. So what David is doing is looking at his own life and he's praising God for who and how he has been made. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David just gets caught up in contemplating what God is, what God has done. My frame, literally my bone, my skeletal system, it was not hidden from you. Then a very strange expression here. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. No, David does not think babies come from the earth's core. Not what he's saying. In David's day and age, 3,000 years ago, there were two very inaccessible areas, under the earth and a woman's womb. Like, they didn't have the technology to be able to go tinkering around in there, and so that was just an off-limits, inaccessible place. And so David's using poetic language here to describe the mother's womb. This was an agrarian society. They knew where babies came from. They'd seen animals. They knew what happens. David's not saying, well, I guess babies all just come from that lake of molten iron at the center of the earth. Of course not. It's, it's poetic language here. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Before I was, you knew me. Before I was, you knew me. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. It's not fatalistic. It's not saying that God views us as robots. It's just saying that God exists in the eternal now and he sees every stage of time all at once. 
the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. David says the highest remark I can make is to begin to think your thoughts after you, to see the world through your eyes because you have made me for this. I'll never be God, but I can begin to experience your creation as if you would experience it. I can see the world through your eyes. I can smell the world, as it were, through your experience. That's why we read God's word, to think his thoughts after him. Verse 18, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. The idea there is, it's like a dream thinking about you. It's, it's, it's a dreamlike thing, but then I awake and it's better than that because you are with me and you love me. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked. <laughs> okay, so that's a pretty abrupt pivot David makes there. Yes, David's awareness of his present contemplation causes him to have a little bit of a side. He sort of breaks fourth wall, you might say. If God is like everything that he's just described, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, that he can do whatever he wants, then that creates a divide in the human race. There are those who love God, and there are those who reject and refuse him. And David recognizes his own potential for sin and error and failure and falling away. And so he says, I want nothing to do with them that you would splay them, that you would remove those men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Like, can you believe that there are people that would reject a God like this? Your enemies take your name in vain. They don't appreciate you. They attribute to you things that you do not say. David is offended. Do I not hate those who hate you? Yes, because I'm thinking your thoughts after you now, Lord. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. <laughs> It's a sweet little King David verse there. But his point is, if God is who I believe that he is, then those who reject them, I do not want to be defiled by them. Verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. In view of those that are rejecters and refuters of your goodness and your existence, search me out and see if there's anything that is also offensive to you. Verse 24, and see if there are any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David's confession is that God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, that he can do whatever he wants. So that means something very intensely practical for us. So let me just give three quick implications of what that means for us. Number one goes like this. A right view of God produces a right view of self. Some of you may say, hey, wait a second. I've heard that one before in another passage. Yup, because that is a very common, consistent biblical theme. A right view of God produces a right view of self. To put that another way, a high theology produces a low anthropology. It produces in us humility a right estimation of ourselves. A lot of us feel the pressures and the burden and the strains to run our own world. And when we can't do an adequate job, not if, but when we can't do an adequate job, we feel like we've let everybody else down. But the reality is, you're never actually holding anybody else up. So relax. You're not God. There is a God and you are not Him. So this passage and this consideration of God's attributes should lead us to humility. 
Comprehending God's omnipotence brings the rest of our world into focus. A lot of us are functional deists. We just think that God sort of got the whole thing started and then he stepped away and if it's to be, it's up to me. But every now and then I just need a little bit of a boost or a nudge from God. That's deism and it's not biblical. Or that he is the God of the gaps. He just intervenes when things get really bad. But no, he is omnipotent in every single aspect and facet of existence. All of it. God can do whatever he wants. And what we've seen is he wants to be involved at the very minute molecular level. Which brings me to my second point, and this is super important. It goes like this. God is good. God is good. David says this. If all we have is a God of omniscience, a God of omnipresence, and a God of omnipotence, but he's not good, this is the worst news ever. Because if he's ornery and cantankerous, and every now and then just decides to wipe out a, three, a few galaxies, that's very bad news for us. But he isn't. All of this is couched in the fact that he is good. By the way, a lot of unbelieving friends and family members that you have, they perceive God that way, that he's probably strong and mighty, but probably not good. If he was really good, why would he be letting all of these bad things happen? Why are there hurricanes? Why are there storms? Why are there shootings? Why are there tornadoes? Certainly, there are many people that would adopt the mindset of Rabbi Harry Kushner, who wrote many years ago, when bad things happen to good people, and he said, God just doesn't really have the strength that we think he does. Satan won that round. Oh, God will come back around, have no fear, but God's not all that strong. Psalm 139 is a direct refutation of Rabbi Kushner's work, by the way. Scripture from start to finish is telling us that all things are under his supervision and his super intention, and yet that God is in no way responsible for evil. He is good. And so even when bad things occur, we have the opportunity to know the entire story, whereas Job did not. Job was writing 4,000 years ago. He doesn't understand that there's been a conversation between God and Satan. But we understand. We never have to wonder or question if God is good. If we do, we simply need to look to the cross and see to the lengths that God goes to to demonstrate his power. We understand that God is working. We only need to look to the cross to see how good his grace and his glory really is. We can trust him in all things and at all times and in every situation. Third point. God is for us. God is for us. Let me phrase this another way because I don't want to give the impression that God is some sort of boost or nudge or, or a genie that exists for our whim. What I mean is that God knows me intimately so he can take care of me perfectly. God knows me intimately so he can take care of me perfectly. Even when I don't notice or recognize or appreciate, even when I'm not a fan of my circumstance, God knows me intimately. And so he is taking care of me perfectly. In other words, God has in mind my good even more than I do. And he knows what that good is even when I don't. And he actually has the power to accomplish my good. And he will, even if it seems unpleasant to me in the near term. We, as his people, are worth so much to him that he will actually allow us to experience and endure hardship now because he really is working all things, all things together for our good and for his glory. He's not holding out on us ever. He is always active for our good, always. That's his love for us. God can do whatever 
he wants. Now, I've thought about this this week, and I've been sort of preaching through my own mind. How would I get through this passage? It's, it's like David said, it's too high, it's too wonderful for me. And some of you know that I've been also just sort of stuck reading through the book of Acts over and over again. David writes this psalm 3,000 years ago. I got into a place in the book of Acts that I have read and preached many times, but never, ever seen this before. A thousand years after King David writes Psalm 139, something marvelous happens. It happens in the early church, and I believe that it is a wonderful projection of the early church enacting head and heart theology about God coming from Psalm 139. It's in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to do this super briefly. Fear not. Acts chapter 4, here's the situation. Peter and John, after the resurrection, are preaching Jesus. Peter's already given his sermon at Pentecost. Thousands have come to faith. Now we're in chapter 4, and they continue to preach. They've just healed a lame man. And so the Sanhedrin brings in Peter and John, and they wag their finger and scold them and say, we want you to stop speaking about Jesus. And Peter says, God's telling us to speak. So whether it's right to listen to you or listen to God, you decide. And so they say, well, we're going to order you to stop speaking about Jesus, and they let them go. And so Peter and John go back to the early church, to their friends, and they report that, hey, a persecution is about to break out against the church of God. And in fact, it does. A fierce, fiery opposition breaks out. So in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, when they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Stop speaking about Jesus. The next time they bring him in, they have them flogged. So it's getting very, very serious. Verse 24, And when they, the people gathered, the friends of Peter and John, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so they're going to have a corporate prayer meeting. Listen to the content of their corporate prayer, beginning in verse 24. Sovereign Lord. I love that. Is that how most of us begin our prayer? God of omnipotence. God who can do whatever he wants. This is the first thing that they confess. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They begin by confessing to God that which is true. You are omnipotent. And because of that, everything else snaps right into place. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, a wonderful testimony to inspiration there, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? They're quoting Psalm 2 in their prayer. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. It's a great confession. God, you are sovereign. You worked. And so we know that just a few months ago, you had gathered together both Herod and Pontius Pilate. You are the superintender of all things, and yet you are not responsible for evil. They are responsible for their moral choices, and yet you superintended it for good. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, because God, you can do whatever you want. Verse 29, and now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I love how they are 
confessing corporately and praying the same content as Psalm 139. Apparently, God agrees. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm not saying that every time we pray properly that God's going to shake a building. In fact, I'm kind of hoping that he doesn't. This one's old. But what I'm saying is there's a wonderful model in New Testament Scripture of the early church corporately confessing these truths about God in prayer as a community. That becomes how they think, how they feel. These attributes of God are helping us to implicate our daily belief so that that actually dictates, drives, and determines our behavior. So that our story, our narrative, actually begins to line up and is congruent. We're not living in conflict where we claim this, but live this. Where what we claim and what we do are actually the exact same thing. So maybe some of you are here this morning and you're thinking, well, maybe God can do whatever He wants, but I want to do whatever I want. And I just want you to know from the truth of Scripture, you are dangerously unqualified for that job. And I am as well. And true peace and freedom and relinquishment comes from recognizing that there is a God, that He is good, that He is for us, and He can do whatever He wants. And what He wants is your good, even gooder than you want. This is very good news. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for how You have revealed Yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. And now, You have created these, your people, as walking around instances and demonstrations of your glory, of your goodness and your grace. That when we consider our own lives, you've given us the ingredients to comprehend your omniscience, your omnipresence, your omnipotence, that you are for us. So Father, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, I pray that you will move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus that they will step out of their own attempted sovereignty and control and they will simply but trust in yours. And that you will break whatever chains are binding them into a stricture of life that is paralyzing and confining. That you will help them to fully receive and appreciate that for freedom, your son Jesus has set us free. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here this morning. I'm going to remind you, as we do at the end of every service, we've got someone here that would love to pray with you. This is Colleen. She's a rock star. Not really, but she's awesome. And she would love to pray with you if you want to come up here. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. I want to remind you also, if you've never come to Discover Bethel, it is after our second service. That'll be about 12 o'clock noon on the second floor. We would love to see you there. Now, may the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, because he can do whatever he wants. May he equip you for every good work and may you do it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.